I want you to imagine that you've gone to sleep. Shouldn't be hard. Hopefully everybody sleeping well that's listening to this. And when you wake up, you wake up next to the sea, and it's a cliff. Almost a cliff. And on the other side of you, there's there's a mountain. And you're in you're in between the two. You wake up looking out at the sea, you you do your yoga, wash your hair. And then when you turn to your left, so if you're looking at the sea, you turn to your left and you see an army. It's, it's a lot of it's a lot of guys. Historians are divided on exactly how many people are there, but it is a lot of people. More people that are, are armed and dangerous than probably anybody listening to this has seen in their entire lives. We're talking up to a million in the not-to-be-believed category, but likely 50, 100,000 men armed, dangerous, coming towards you. At least the anticipation of their imminent arrival is there. For most of us, for me, I think for a lot of people in, involved in this situation, you would get out of there as quickly as possible. But no, you've woken up as, as a Spartan, or as they were known at the time, as a Lacedaemonian. And instead of instead of running, just getting out of the way, because there are about a thousand of you, 300 Spartans and Lacedaemonians, and up to a thousand people from other areas in what we call Greece today. Instead of this running, you stand. You turn... You know that they're coming from the other side, too. This is some knowledge that you figured out the day before. But you did not run. You stood there and faced them. Certain death. Few situations in human history, especially in recorded war, have shown more guaranteed just death than this situation. And yet biologically despite this difference in opinion about what you should do. These people are the same as you and me. You or I. They're the exact same. So what makes a person stand and fight in this situation when all logic dictates that you should be doing literally anything else? Well, that's what we're going to explore today. This is the inaugural episode of Armchair History, and it's titled, This is Sparta. I'm not a historian. I was a history major in college, but that gets farther away every day. I have to stress that, though, because the points of view, the things that happened, while they might feel concrete in a history book, are all still fluid. These are human beings we're talking about. And the story of Sparta, the type of city that can produce 
the type of men that stand in what you've probably realized now is the pass at Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans stood and died to buy time for the Greeks fighting the Persians. The city that can produce men that will do that, it toes the line between what one of my professors called the difference between the dark and the light, which is writing. The Battle on the Pass of Thermopylae happened in 480 BC, BCE, the beginning of the written word in Greece. I had a professor one time that described writing as a light. And the Greeks were the first to actually flip that light switch. They weren't the first to invent writing, but they were the first to invent the idea of a narrative story in writing. It's the equivalent to the Middle East and the Mesopotamia, the Near East, and down into Egypt, where writing was used to record the amounts of grain stored, cities captured, but none of the, the stories, the tales, there's a lot of blanks to be filled in. The Greeks, well, the Mesopotamians lit the equivalent of a candle turned on a spotlight right around the time that Sparta made its last stand at Thermopylae. And there, there were people alive. There were people perhaps fighting at that battle that remembered in their early childhood the written word and its modern understanding not existing, and by the time they died, it did. That makes it difficult to understand certain aspects of this story. There are going to be gaps. There are going to be bits and pieces that aren't understood because that light was turned on and it was bright compared to the rest of the world, but it certainly wasn't as bright as today or a thousand years after. The period that Sparta comes out of is known as the dark period in Greece, unrelated to the light and explosiveness of its culture that really colored in the era after the Spartans made their last stand. The famous philosopher Socrates, who was not a Spartan or a Lacedaemonian, was born an estimated 10 years after the battle at Thermopylae and still railed against the written word. So the sources that we will reference, especially for the early history of Sparta, were written much later and colored by what had happened since. And this is where we pick up the story of Sparta, a city that exists in southern Greece, still to this day, although it was reformed as a point of Greek pride, almost. If you see Greece on a map, it looks like a hand in the southern part, the Peloponnese. That's where Sparta is. The southern area of that. And according to Herodotus in the 7th century, this area came under tremendous civil strife, lawlessness, an inability to control the 
the city, the type of experience allows for, well, any entity to do something extreme, do something extreme in its response. This is not covered a ton. The information on this is scratchy, but something dramatic had to cause the type of human experiment that Sparta would become. The makeup of this strife-ridden city was different, strange, not what you would think of the same people living in the same place governing each other. This early Spartan state was colored by the fact that in this age of prehistory, the Dorians, the, the Macedonians from the north had conquered the area where Sparta would rise, creating a, a class system that would dominate the political and the, the cultural experience that you would have living in Sparta if you took a time machine and went back happened to learn ancient Greek. You would notice this tiered society immediately. It's what caused the strife in the 7th century BC and the remarkable transformation of that society. The Spartan state rose out of this darkness a completely different animal than any other city-state in Greece. A unique experience leading to a unique reaction. At its peak, Sparta had 20 to 35,000 citizens. This is not a lot. It's one of the larger city-states in Greece, but when compared to the population of, say, Athens, the other city-state that you can probably name off the top of your head. Thucydides, one of the writers that we'll be referencing, so the population of Athens in 431 was 360,000 to 610,000. The influence of the population, then, the influence per citizen, per member of the population in Sparta, far outweighed that of, of an Athens. Its ability to influence history and Greek politics far outweighed that. But because of the way Sparta was constructed socially, its population was much larger. There was a significantly larger number of helots who were for hundreds of years at the point that Sparta becomes historically relevant. It had been an enslaved, conquered population that are not unlike the serfs of medieval times. You watch a medieval period drama and you see the, the peasants working the land. That's the idea of who the helots were. The Spartans were the capital in the Hunger Games. The helots worked the districts. This allowed Sparta to do a number of things in its population that were not possible for a city-state like Athens that needed its population to work in all disciplines. 
and then participate in governance and military affairs and those sorts of things. Citizenship was not an earned right in this Sparta. It was passed down by birth and birth alone, which is an obvious issue when you start to get into warring situations, but I'll say that's a point for later. We started this story before anything, saying what would it be like to wake up? What in your human nature would you do in this sort of situation? Well, these people from Sparta, they were different. They did things that it's impossible for us to wrap our heads around today and hopefully tomorrow. But if you were born in Sparta, you were subjected to a life that built you for that moment. In Sparta, they practiced early eugenics. You're born into a Spartan family. But here's your life as a Spartan. You're born, assuming you survive the birth. You're then bathed in wine, which for a newborn that's learning how to breathe is dangerous, rather deadly. You had to survive this ordeal to prove that you were worthy of living. This was not the final trial of your newborn age. You are brought before a collection, an old wise group called the Jerusia, and a full guarantee that that's been horrifically mispronounced, but the Jerusia. And they decide if the baby should live. This is an early practice of pruning the weak out of society before society has really even begun. It's impossible to fathom bringing your child before a panel, the human experience this would be. And there's no writing on this, no way to know for sure how traumatic this was for the parents, because even though they were like you or I, when this is all you've ever known, you survived this process. At some point, do you believe that this process is correct? The best way to push society forward? It's a, an experiment. And what you can make people believe, what is the right thing to do? And those children that are survive the wine bath, they're brought before the Jerusia. If they're undersized, deformed in any way, not breathing properly. They're thrown into a chasm. This has been proven by excavation. A chasm by Mount Tegetos. If you did not pass the test of the Grusia, the eye test, the physical test, you were thrown into a chasm because you were not strong enough to be a Spartan citizen. And you grow up, you watch this happen your entire life, you grow up in a, a world where you know that you at one point as a newborn were brought before this commission, for lack of a better, more ancient term, this cabal, that decided whether you got to live or die based off your physicality. That has to shape the way you look at 
everything going forward and everything you understand about Spartan society. How does it color your decision-making mentally when you know that you've survived this and so shouldn't everybody be else, everybody else be able to, to survive this, being subjected to physical assessment? After all, the only people alive are the winners. It's the one thing you probably knew coming into this podcast is that Sparta was a militaristic state. It's also what could be described as a completely even playing field. Both men and women had their paths that they had to follow. For the men, they entered the agog system. Another word that I've surely mispronounced, but I've, we've done our best. They enter this at seven. At seven years old, you enter the agog system as a, as a male. You're given enough food, uh, and this is the way it's described, you're given enough food to be lean and no want. So this is not a time of, of merriment and three meals a day and plentiful food. It is designed from the off to teach you, to mold you to life on campaign, to life of hardship. And every Spartan citizen is able to do this, remember, because the helots are working the fields, running the water, doing the things a society needs to survive. And once that has freed up every citizen of Sparta to partake in this widespread, this uniform grooming of the entire society, I mean, this is how it's possible. For most places, it wasn't. They aren't just taught military activities from the beginning. They're taught how to read and write. It's a fully literate society. In ancient times, they're taught to play music. It's a rounded education with an obvious emphasis on being fit and, and strong. But more in a, a CrossFit sort of way. These weren't men that sat around lifting boulders all day. They did calisthenics they did what we would describe now as a, a sort of yoga they were lean and they were tough the education as it's come down to us was written to value the spartan state above all a form of virulent early nationalism as you go through this education from the age of seven full-time living and working and learning and fighting with the other boys alongside you in this in this instance it progresses and makes your life even even more difficult as you age by the by the time you're 12 in this agog system think about what you were doing when you were 12 you had to sleep outside you had to make your own beds from from reeds and you were not allowed to sleep inside from that point. Your food rations were continuously cut, and you had to steal food from the markets, from the helots that were working the fields. You had to, you had to steal food in order to survive. But if you were caught, you were flogged. You're starving, you need food to survive, you steal the food, you get caught by 
a helot, the servant class, another way to think about it in the modern sense. And you get beaten, often savagely. And you're trying to steal food every day, so you either get very good at the agility, the speed, the sleight of hand, the tricks, finding some way to get that food, or you're in pain day after day after day after day. And then, of course, they had to be flogged to be initiated into the Spartan military. This actually became... It was so bloody that it became a, a blood sport that the Romans, after conquering all of Greece, would pay to watch the initiates to the Spartan military be flogged. Now, it was very different at this time. This The classical Sparta uh, had changed a lot and was no longer, as a lot of human experiments like this are throughout history, able to maintain the unique conditions that allowed it to partake in this military state. To get into the final initiation, you had to be beaten in front of the Artemis Orthia, which is a shrine, a temple to the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. And then you're in military units, every single male citizen. From the time you're seven, trained with an emphasis, taught to fight all different ways, be tough and lean and strong and clever and fast and withstand pain. It's special forces training in the ancient world, psychological element to warfare, and there's an element to Spartans that's just remarkable in their mental toughness and their ability to turn and face things, and it's because every single person in that past where you woke up and you ran the other way experienced this. Their brother and their sister were thrown into a gorge because they were too small when they were born. They were beaten when they couldn't properly steal a loaf of bread from another human being. There were even units that were put together. You can imagine the reasons these units would be put together to terrorize the helots. There were special military units within the Spartan military hierarchy that their entire goal was to keep the helots on their toes murder them intimidate them and this lies the key of the entire spartan experiment the spartans realized as the ruling class that they were smaller than the servant class that they ruled over and so you can see the natural progression into the type of training that existed at this phase, this generation that ended up at Thermopylae that enters the Agog at age seven, becomes literate and intelligent, but also ruthless. Because every single person needed to be able to pick up arms and fight well if the helots got too uppity. They were taught to kill the helots. I wasn't able to confirm this, and I know nobody will be, and it's some the practice that probably faded in and out of use, but definitely happened to some extent as it's written about enough in the histories, is in order to become part of the Spartan military, you had to kill a helot. Some say it had to, it had to be a baby. Whether it did or not, this is somebody under the age of 17 killing somebody 
in order to continue in society. There's no other option. You either kill the person or they kill you. You have to kill them. This is what you, it's, the, the, your high school graduation is congratulations, go murder somebody. And then you're part of society. And this wasn't just the men. It was the men for the military training, but out of all of the Greek states, the women entered a system similar too. They got to stay at home for longer. They didn't have to leave home until a 12 or 13 instead of seven for the boys. But according to Paul Cartledge, these were the only women in Greece that received an education. And you can tell because it's the only Greek state where women end up front and center in some of the stories. I mean, there are famous lines from, from not just men, but women. Uh, there's a, a quote that I, I love from Gorgo, who is a queen of, of Sparta. Sparta was a, something of a monarchy. It was ruled by two kings and then uh, really a cabal of rulers under them, some sort of military oligarchy. It's complicated and not necessary to understand and not hugely influential to learning what it was like to grow up in Sparta. But when asked by a woman from Attica's, another city-state in Greece, why are you Spartan women the only ones who can rule men? Gorgo said, because we are the only ones who give birth to men. Not only is the show that the famous tart replies of Spartan women were also celebrated, but that Spartan women were also indoctrinated into the toughness, the belief in what Sparta was doing, because we are the only ones who give birth to men. That is why we can rule men. And this sense from the Spartans, who I referenced in the beginning, are also the Lacedaemonians, at the time known as the Lacedaemonians, and now known to us as the Spartans. They had this sense of abruptness, a sense the opposite of Athens, where prose and poetry and literary achievement were celebrated, much the same they would be in Rome. And Sparta, it was a sign of weakness, a need to be tart. It was taught. This is where the phrase Laconian, the word Laconian, which you may or may not have heard, comes from Lacedaemonians. And it couldn't be more perfectly demonstrated by a meeting between Athens and Sparta. These sorts of things happened all the time. And an Athenian accused the Spartans of being ignorant. And the Spartan Pleistoonics said, uh, what you say is true, agreed with the Athenian. He said, we alone of all Greeks have learned none of your evil ways. To the Athenian. Drawing the line between the two the, the two cultures that dominated the continent. Another one that serves no purpose in telling this story, but to give an idea of the way that Sparta operated, the way they always operated with that confidence and toughness and short wit. This was after the peak of Sparta, the downfall. And Philip II of Macedon sent a message to Sparta. If I enter Laconia, I will raise Sparta. 
and the king of the Spartans at the time, he responded with, with, with a reply. He responded with a single word. If. If I enter Laconia, I will raise Sparta. If. And the whole upbringing of these people that end up standing at this pass of Thermopylae that creates human beings capable of that kind of brazen toughness. It should come as no surprise that as we return to that pass in Thermopylae, that when Leonidas, the king of Sparta, who was at that pass, which tells you a lot about how even the rulers were not the traditional classic Greek ruler sitting on his blanket eating grapes and drinking wine. This guy was in the field, same place. Something of a Clint Eastwood type of person. They all really were. They belong in westerns with their... You can see the scowls and the... those short replies and the toughness, the grit, the I've seen things. Every one of these people was like that. Every Spartan to a man was like that. And all of the women as well were in that same camp. It should come as no surprise that when Leonidas was guarding the pass at Thermopylae and Xerxes offered the emperor of Persia to spare his men if they gave up their arms, he said, will you give up your arms? We will spare you. And Leonidas' response is one of the most famous in all history. He sent the message back and said what in Greek is molon labe, come and take them. It's actually the motto of the Greek First Army Corps at this point. And so the Spartans woke up. They did these calisthenics that they'd been taught. Lean, fit, muscular. They often had long hair. They'd wash it before battle so that they look good for the, the histories. I suppose that includes us. And they offered an army of Persian troops, tough men from the ancient world in their own right, the Persians who had rolled a quarter of the entire known world at this point, more than that to them. They rolled them up like a sheet and they stood in front of them and said, come and take them. The battle that followed, Leonidas died, Spartans died, but the Greek city-states lived. And it's often thought that this was a stand of West against East. That's undoubtedly an oversimplification. What it was, was a sign of one of the most unique civilizations that's maybe ever existed. A full military state capable of producing men that will stand there and happily die. And die well and hold a pass for days on end against the onslaught of an army at 50, 100 times its size. Because they grew up in the Agog and got beaten and stole food and their siblings were murdered and they murdered other people. They're not necessarily the good guys. You grew up with them, you might not have liked them. But they're the type of people that you meet in history, Leonidas at the front of his men, that we just wish we could meet today to understand, learn a little bit more about ourselves.
Sparta would rot eventually from the inside out. Eventually, a Spartan army a couple hundred years later would surrender the first Spartan army ever taken in the field by Thracians, half-Greek people in the north. Sign that prolonged exposure to cities like Athens, eventually those evil ideas that had been blasted by Pleistonax. They'd learned enough of them. These silk slippers of civilization had gone on to Sparta and they joined the rest of the Greek city-states and lost this special power that they had in uniqueness. But even after this experiment was watered down and 2,500 years later, such a small number of people produce something so unique that it still captivates all of us today. Because it was Sparta.